Christian citizenship. We're moving away, of course, from our series in the Gospel of John here just for one Sunday. So uh, we'll be back uh, next, next week, Lord willing, to start uh, chapter 21, the last chapter in the Gospel of John. But uh, this morning we want, since uh, Sunday falls on July 4th, we wanted to take um, the opportunity to talk about Christian citizenship. Think about something that uh, we don't normally uh, think about. Uh, so I'm grateful, uh, by way of introduction here, I'm grateful that our nation sets a day, a day aside, as it does today, where we can reflect on our heritage, review some of our history. Uh, if you think back, I, I'm personally amazed by what our founding fathers endured um, through great hardship. Uh, if you go back and read some of those stories, if you haven't read them recently, it'd do you good to take some time and read them. Read about George Washington and read about some of the, the difficulties of starting this country and the war. And, and with all the problems our nation faces today, you know, some people look out and look around and say, hmm, kind of a different place than it used to be or a different place than I'd like it to be. With all the challenges our nation faces, it's still a land of great opportunity, great freedom and liberty, and ultimately all of that a gift from God. But there is a tension many of us live with day to day. I'm sure that you feel it as I do. I'm a citizen of this nation. That is true. But I also recognize I'm a citizen of heaven. And the purposes of our nation, you may have noticed, do not always go hand in hand with the purposes of our God and of his eternal kingdom. There are laws on the books of this land that I would never agree with or give assent to. I would rather work to overturn them or undo them. Laws that permit certain kinds of living that the God of the Bible says are immoral and offensive to him. Laws that allow the murder of unborn children. Laws that redefine the universe as God established it. Truths regarding marriage and gender. Laws that call evil good and good evil. The very kind of sins that put Jesus on the cross. So just because our nation says that we may does not mean that God says we may. And we feel that tension, don't we? Don't you feel it? I feel it. I think our text this morning helps us to begin to resolve that tension a little bit or to know what to do with it. To give a little context, remember the church at Philippi, that's where we are, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Remember that the church at Philippi is the first church that Paul founded in Europe during his second missionary journey, probably around the year 49 A.D. in the first century. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was the capital of the province of Macedonia, modern-day Greece. One historian wrote, writes that in the time of the Emperor Augustine, this city became a Roman colony. It was, uh, it was a military settlement of Roman soldiers. Um, it was planted for the purpose of controlling and managing this district that had recently been conquered by the Romans. It was, a, it was a miniature Rome under the municipal law of Rome, and it was governed by military officers. 
Philippi was also a crossroads uh, in the trade lanes of the world of the time. It was an influential economic center. So we can conclude that living in Philippi in the first century at this time was a privilege. Uh, I suspect that many of the Philippians felt about their city and their province the way many of us may feel about living in Indianapolis, in the state of Indiana, in the United States of America. I think it's a great privilege to live here and to be a citizen of this nation. I know many of you feel that way as well. If you don't, you ought to travel internationally sometime. Uh, That'll make you appreciate what God has given us here, even with all of our warts, all of our problems. Many years later now, Paul writes a letter back to this church that he has started. It's the the letter we're looking at this morning. He writes from a Roman prison. And I think that is an interesting point, and it's instructive to us on how we read the letter of Philippians. Paul was a natural-born citizen of Rome, and he he, as you, you guys remember the story from the book of Acts, he had to invoke his rights of Roman citizenship when the Jews in Jerusalem had stirred up trouble and he was about to get killed. So Paul makes an appeal that ultimately takes him to Rome, to Caesar. But at this point, he's, he's been imprisoned. It's not the kind of imprisonment that, it's not the worst kind of imprisonment that a person could experience in that day, but it was still rough. And so it's interesting to me that he is writing back to these people who live in this place. He's a person who's very aware of his own national citizenship. He's, He's used it. He's appealed to his rights in order to get a hearing before Caesar. And he's writing to people who are also privileged in that they're located in the city of Philippi. Now, go back to chapter 1 for just a second, and let's do a quick skim as we get up to our text here and just highlight a couple of things, because I want you to see what's in Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. He has one of his typical introductions back there in in, uh, verse 1. Verse 2 is his typical blessing that he begins um, his letters with. Then Paul immediately begins to express his thanks to the church. He's thanking them specifically for their partnership in the gospel. You see that? It's a very important starting point. He goes on then to, in verse 12, express thanksgiving for the advancement of the gospel. But if you're, if you're kind of skimming these verses with me, you'll notice very quickly that even though he's expressing thanks there, he's, he's also demonstrating, he's, he's saying that he's imprisoned. Why? Because he's saying that the imprisonment that he's experiencing at that moment is actually serving to advance the gospel. God is actually using it to advance the gospel. Another cause for thanks in verse 15 to 18 of chapter 1, some preachers around him are actually preaching the gospel out of envy, out of rivalry. Paul is still thankful that the gospel is going forward, even with the bad stuff that surrounds some of it. And as the third portion of chapter 1, I want to call your attention to, look down to verse 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He uses a term there that we could actually translate in that particular verse, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your behavior as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
So there's this imperative here. There's this command of living life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then in chapter 2, he, he actually practices what he is preaching. He encourages them with the gospel. And it's that beautiful passage that we love. He describes the humility of Christ coming in flesh, being obedient even to the point of death on the cross. But God has highly exalted him. We know through his resurrection, through his ascension, picking up there in verse 9, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And out of this beautiful, very beautiful, very powerful expression of the gospel, he begins to exhort them to appeal to them to live as children of God and that carries him to chapter 3 he addresses there in chapter 3 in verse 2 he begins to address opponents that there are opponents of the gospel and then he he summarizes his his own life's testimony and and shows the Philippian church that works of righteousness no matter how religious you may think that you are those works of righteousness will never commend anyone to the Father. And he counts all of that as loss, he says, right? The one thing he desires to do, Paul says, is to know Christ. To know the power that raised him from the dead. And so, Paul's ambition, he describes there in verse 12 and following, is really an ambition that is born in the gospel. It's centered on the gospel. It loves, it promotes the gospel. So after that brief summary of the letter to this point, we get down to verse 17. And this is where Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So watch me and watch the people who are watching me. Right? And then he establishes a division, two groups of people. And that's what I want to focus on here in the time that we have remaining this morning. The two groups he focuses here. So if you're taking notes, this is point one, and it's the enemies of the cross. The enemies of the cross. We see them in in verses 18 and 19 here. Now, when we refer to an enemy of the state, when you hear that kind of language, we're, we're referring to someone who is hostile toward the purposes, toward the laws of a nation. Paul's not primarily concerned with enemies of the Roman state. And no doubt there were many in this day and age. But what he is concerned with at this point are enemies of the cross. And this has bearing on how we view our heavenly citizenship this morning as people who, as it were, have a foot on earth and a foot in heaven. Let's look at these enemies of the cross for a minute, this first group. I want to note the characteristics of these enemies of the cross and then note the end of these enemies. So first of all, notice their characteristics. There are three of them that I want to highlight that the text highlights here. Number one, right in the text, their God is their belly. Do you see it? Now, does that mean they're literally worshiping their stomach? That holding tank for food and for beverage? Not literally. But, but what this is speaking of is worshiping their appetites, their physical appetites, all of those appetites, all the things that we crave for our bodies. These people were likely what were called uh, in this time, they were Greek, they're Epicureans. You may have heard that term before. These are people who taught 
that the satisfaction of physical appetites was the highest aim of man. It's live for pleasure. All we have to do, brothers and sisters, is open our eyes and look around us, don't we? To see that many, even under the name of Christianity, unfortunately, are living today trying desperately to satisfy all their appetites. Living to find a kind of pleasure that fulfills them, that satisfies them. Heather Hills, can I tell you Jesus did not die on the cross in order that we might waste our living in seeking pleasure. Now, in his kindness, in his infinite wisdom, God has filled our world with pleasures, hasn't he? Uh, who here doesn't love the pleasure of, of going out at, on, on, a, on a beautiful night with a dark sky and looking up and seeing fireworks? And the explosions and all the beautiful colors and, and hearing the patriotic music and watching parades and, and feeling that sense of national pride. It's fine. I, I love that. I'll be doing that later tonight. Some of you probably did that last night in different places. I heard the fireworks last night going on and on and on. Now, now hear me clearly. I'm not saying that all godly people avoid legitimate pleasure. I'm not saying that. We welcome it. We enjoy. We participate in pleasure. But we don't make it our God. And we don't make it the aspiration of our lives. It's not what we're pursuing with our heart and soul and mind and strength. No, sir. Their God is their belly. Notice the second characteristic of enemies of the cross. They glory in their shame. Again, right out of the text here. Disgraceful conduct, which should actually be repented of and turned away from, is something that these kinds of people rejoice in. These kinds of people celebrate. And again, all we have to do is open our eyes, right? And look around. And, and open our eyes and our ears to see that this world is full of sounds, full of music that is godless, that is profane, that does not promote spiritual life, that does not promote spiritual health in your own heart. This world is constantly producing movies and television series which are filled with immoral content and blasphemous words. Brothers and sisters, let me say again, the Lord Jesus Christ did not shed his blood so that we could sit back and welcome and enjoy and be entertained by disgraceful, shameful content. Many of us likely need to repent and turn away from some of our listening and viewing choices and habits. Especially this last year, as we've been locked up for the better part of a year, a lot of us have increased a lot of our viewing and listening habits as we've had all this time to ourselves. 
We need to take inventory, brothers and sisters. We don't want to be like the enemies of the cross who glory in their shame. Who are unashamed of things that they should be ashamed of. We see this even in recent parades in our streets in the month of June all across this country where people and, and, and stories in our media that, that are celebrating perverse and immoral lifestyles. And let me be clear, we should not abuse or mistreat people who are lost and slaves to sin just as we were. But we should not share. No, no, no. We should not share or join in their celebration of what should be ashamed of. They glory in their shame. This is what enemies of the cross do. This is what defines them. Look, notice the third characteristic. Their minds are set on earthly things. Do you see that right there in the text? This just means they, they have an earthly mindset, an earthly orientation. They may know about eternal life and, and heaven or even have heard the gospel, but they don't live in it. They don't live for it. They don't consider sacrificing their own time and their resources or their money because of it. And that's because Jesus is not first in their hearts. But what is first in their hearts is finding and experiencing pleasure, knowing comfort and ease, gaining advancement and recognition, influence and power. These are the cravings of their hearts and no thoughts of kingdom priority or kingdom purpose. For these people, missions is what other people do. Evangelism and outreach, this is what other people do. Bible study and prayer, we'll do a little bit of that on Sunday morning. But that's for the really religious people. These are characteristics of those that the Lord says are enemies of the cross. Their mindset is on earthly things. I hope these are never characteristics that define you and me, brothers and sisters. Notice their ends, not only their characteristics, but their end. What is the end of such enemies of the cross? Look at the back of the verse, beginning of verse 19. Notice the end is what? Destruction. Now that word destruction can refer either to temporal destruction or it can refer to eternal destruction. And since this verse stands in contrast to what comes in verse 20, my firm belief here is that Paul is clearly speaking of eternal destruction. So the point here is that if you are an enemy of the cross in this lifetime, bad things are going to happen to you. That's not the point. The point is, you can actually live as an enemy of the cross, experience great prosperity, have all kinds of pleasurable experiences, gain all kinds of recognition and advancement, and yet, in the end, suffer the greatest loss of all. Jesus once posed an eternally important question. Do you remember this one? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his soul. And my friend, if you are all about gaining the whole world today and your soul is not secure by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in him, you have nothing. Nothing. The end for enemies of the cross is destruction. And that brings us to verse 20. That brings us to the second group that I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. The people of God. Hopefully this is you and me, right? Citizens of heaven. The citizens of heaven. Strong contrast here in verse, to verse 19. Look, he uses at the beginning of, of verse 20, that little word, but. It's the strongest conjunction you can use in the Greek language to show contrast. Instead of those people This group, nothing like those people. This group is totally different. There's a huge contrast, light and darkness. Destruction is not our end. The characteristics that he has just given should not characterize us. Why? Our citizenship is in heaven. This word citizenship is found in this particular form only twice in the New Testament here and then in Acts 22, 30, or 28. Just as the city of Philippi was a colony of Rome, so the church at Philippi is a colony of heaven. And so the church in Indianapolis is a colony of heaven. Our citizenship is in Heaven. The Bible uses that term in many different ways, but what it simply refers to here is the dwelling place of God. Matthew 23, 22 says, Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. So our citizenship ultimately is not about a geographical location. Our citizenship is about a person. Now our life here on earth as citizens of heaven ought to stand in stark contrast to citizens of the earth. Remember, their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Go back to Philippians 1 for just a minute, probably a page flip. Philippians 1.27 Paul speaks very specifically to the church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I told you earlier, that phrase, let your manner of life, is using terminology that speaks about citizenship. It refers to being a citizen of a state, to live as a good citizen. And so what Paul is saying here is that um, we need, as Christians, to be good citizens in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you realize how divided Christian people were during the time of the Revolutionary War. Pastors ended up on both sides and had very little love for each other politically, but maintained some civility toward each other. Even though one pastor might have been among the group that was called the Tories, the loyalists. Another pastor might have been 
among the group that, that we might call today patriots. They called at the time rebels. How would you have resolved a tension like that in the church? I don't know. I wonder sometimes if, if I went back to 1776, which, which group would I have stood with? I don't know at the time. It's easy a couple hundred years later to look back and say, I would have stood with George Washington. Now, if you were living in Boston or New York in 1776, it might not have been so clear a decision. When I first came to Indianapolis in 2008, I was asked to speak at a political forum for young leaders. Um, I had had some political involvement back in Colorado and and they had heard about that. So a, a U.S. representative, by the way, uh, by the name of Mike Pence, also spoke to that gathering to show you how far back it's been now. My, my topic that I spoke to these, these young uh, leaders was why the Revolutionary War may have violated Romans chapter 13. I wasn't asked back to speak again. <laughs> but for the record, I am happy that we kicked those redcoats all over the eastern seaboard before they got back on ships and went to England, okay? I'm not sure everything was done exactly theologically correctly. But I'm glad for American independence and this great country. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of our citizenship? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Citizenship that has reference to the gospel of Christ. As citizens of that heavenly kingdom, we have to live worthily only of the good news of Christ. That's the most important thing. The way that you could serve this nation most fully, most significantly, would be to live worthily of the gospel. That's part of the reason that this nation has been so immensely blessed. Say what historians may want to say, rewrite what they want to rewrite. They can't get away from the fact that a large number of people came to this place seeking religious freedom that they didn't have in the places that they came from across the Atlantic Ocean. It's amazing to think that nearly 400 years ago, a group of people thought that loyalty to Christ was more important than maintaining the status quo in the place where they were born, in the place where they had businesses, in the place where they raised children. The risks to them were worth it because to know God to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of suffering. That's, that's it. That's everything. And so that's what allowed many of them to crowd onto very small boats and cross an ocean. And these weren't carnival cruise ships, friends. Many of these people died on these voyages, seeking that life, that freedom. This is part of what Paul seems to be expressing from the Roman prison. You start to understand why Roman citizenship wasn't what his life was all about, even though it was a good citizenship to have. 
Paul told the Philippians, remember earlier in this chapter, he was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Great stuff, right? He had the resume. He had the bio. But he counted it as lost. Why? Because it nearly condemned his soul. That's why. That's the force of what he's saying when he says that he counts it as rubbish, the ESV says. Not a great translation there. Dung. Refuse. What belongs in the sewer. That's what he says all that stuff belongs to. But in Christ, Paul found something so much more precious. Now, Heather Hills, when we get serious about living the Christian life in a manner worthy of the gospel, it will stir things up. It will not necessarily make things better for us politically, especially in the current environment in which we live. But it is the only thing that God lays before us as his plan and his strategy. And by the way, I praise God for those who are politically active. I think that the Spirit of God has, in every age, in every generation, He has raised up people who are zealous for justice and righteousness and truth, who champion the cause of the poor and the needy and the destitute and the oppressed. And I praise God for those of you who will express your gospel-centered living in that way. And may God raise up a young generation now who will courageously fight at the local and state and even national level in politics. For others... You may express this kind of gospel living by service in the military. Some of you will express your Christ-centered, gospel-centered living through economic development. God bless you as you do it. But we never do it solely by setting our minds on saving this nation. We should have learned that lesson back in the 60s and 70s, shouldn't we? What we do is live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a difference. There's a difference. And there's much more here, and, and we have to leave it for now because I'm going to run out of time. But we're going to keep talking about these ideas in the days to come because the tension is still right here right with us. And we're not done talking about these things. But I want you to notice, just as we did with the enemies of the cross, I want you to notice with citizens of heaven, I want you to notice their characteristics and their end from the text, and we'll be finished. Two characteristics. First of all, they wait for a Savior. What characterizes these citizens of heaven? Look at the text. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is a sermon all by itself, by the way. And I would love to preach it to you. But for now, let me just say this. Jesus is coming back. He could come back at any time. 
he promised that he would. He will take his people to the place he's been preparing for them. Do you believe that? And citizens of heaven are watching and waiting for that reality. They wake up to it every morning. They think about it as they go about their day. They rest in its reality when they put their heads in the pillows at night. We as citizens of heaven are on the lookout for our Savior. The one who rescued us from hell. The one, as the text says here, who is our Lord. The one who is God's Messiah, the Christ. The one whom we love because he first loved us. Are you waiting for him, Christian? Or do you get lost in the overwhelming flood of data that crashes over you nonstop on this planet? Focus. Citizens of heaven, look for a Savior. He's coming. Notice another characteristic here. They wait with perseverance. We'll come back to that that next uh, phrase in just a moment. But they wait with perseverance. As they wait, as we wait, we don't stop living. We don't stop working. But citizens of heaven wait with perseverance. I want you to notice the importance of this in this letter. Back in chapter 1, remember that section we looked at? Verse, we see it very clearly in verses 27 and 28. Just after he commands them to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Listen to what he says. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Standing firm. Now look back at chapter 4, verse 1, the end of this little unit we're in this morning. How does Paul sum up this whole text that we've been looking at? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then look back at how he started this paragraph in in verse 17 of chapter 3. What do you say? Imitate me and the people who are imitating me. What does that look like? What does it mean to imitate Paul? Look at the verses just before. Look back to verse 13 and 14. One thing I do. Well, that should be a pretty clear marker, right? You want to imitate Paul? Here's the one thing he does. It It probably should be the one thing you do too. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear these words? Straining, pressing on, standing firm, walking worthily. This is the citizen of heaven way. By the way, perseverance, I always want to take opportunity to say this because I, I want it to be in our heads. I want it to be in our hearts. Perseverance is one of the four P's that we talk about here at Heather Hills, isn't it? It's one of the normal ways, along with proclamation of the word, prayer, and people of God. Perseverance is one of the normal ways that we grow in maturity as a Christian. So, when we find ourselves starting to pursue 
physical appetites in an idolatrous way. When we find ourselves starting to glory in things that are shameful, when our minds get lost and sunk in the mire of earthly things and we're not looking for Jesus in His return, stop. That's what citizens of heavens do. We stop, we repent, we get up off the ground, we get back on the right path, we look up and we keep going. We don't quit. We don't give up. That's how citizens of heaven wait for our Savior, the one who loves us, the one who longs for us. That's why Paul mentions, by the way, um, in that section on the enemies of the cross, back in uh, verse 18, he appeals to the enemies of the cross with tears. Did you pick that up when we went through it? With tears. There but for the grace of God we all were, right? We don't do any good, brothers and sisters, by cursing the darkness. But by lighting a candle. By shining our light. We don't need to scream and yell and denigrate to be faithful and true. We appeal to people, whether it's in person, whether it's on social media, whether it's face-to-face in our workplace or in our school settings. We appeal to people who are enemies of the cross with love, with compassion, with mercy, with long-suffering, and even with tears. This is how citizens of heaven wait for Jesus. Notice their end. Back to verse 21. The Savior who comes from heaven will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know why you don't live for your stomach right now? I know, some of us, it looks like we do. But you know why we don't? You know why citizens of heaven don't? Why we don't pursue such idolatrous ways of living? Because this stomach and everything else around it is going to be changed. It's going to be transformed. Praise God. So when I grow old and sickness and disease begins to work in me and slow me down, I don't panic. I don't even stress over it. You know why? The Lord told me it would be this way. And the Lord told me He's going to come and change us. He's going to transform us. How will that happen? To what extent will this body be transformed? We don't know all that that means, but we know this. Jesus has a perfect body. It's a glorified body without weakness, not subject to disease, not subject to fatigue, not subject to death. The things that slow us down, the things that oftentimes discourage us. So whatever that will be, it will be perfect. And what kind of power will he use to transform these lowly bodies? Oh, it's just the same power, according to the text, that enables him to e- even to subject all things to himself. In other words, Jesus has the power to rule as no other king does. He can actually subject or bring into a specific order underneath himself all things. All things. All things. Did you get it? 
all things. Economy, he's got it. Environment, yeah, he's going to remake all things. It's going to be perfect. Global warming, not a concern. Coming ice age, not going to be one. That's a place of comfort, isn't it? You don't have to wring your hands and worry and run around and fret because of all these things that might happen. The ultimate happy ending for citizens of heaven. Glorious bodies with a glorious Jesus in glory. How's that?